spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. This week on Viewpoints. She's willing to take the risk and put herself out there and get more likes and get more followers. The evolution of influencer marketing. Then... Many people had never seen destruction or devastation on this scale. It's been 150 years since the Great Chicago Fire. We'll take a look back at the fire that forever changed Chicago. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. I struggled with symptoms like frequent gas and stomach pain for years. I was bloated all the time with daily diarrhea. At first, I thought it was what I was eating. I kept thinking it was stomach issues. So I did my research and talked to my doctor, and we finally uncovered the truth. It, it was, was actually EPI. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, is a condition where your pancreas is unable to help break down your food. It can lead to symptoms like diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, unexplained weight loss, and oily stools. And EPI symptoms can be confused with those of other common digestive conditions, like irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, and celiac disease. So getting to the right diagnosis meant being more open with my doctor about the severity of my symptoms and how often they were happening. But there's good news. EPI is manageable, so don't wait any longer. Use the symptom checker at identifyepi.com and schedule a visit or call with your doctor to ask, Could Could I I have have EPI? EPI? Sponsored by AbbVie. If you were to think of some cutting-edge college majors, what comes to mind? Computer science? Engineering? What about social media? For some, it may be a surprise that a number of universities are offering the opportunity to major or minor in social media. Some critics might ask, why pay several thousands of dollars to study something that you can mainly learn outside of the classroom? But supporters argue that there's a big demand for this kind of instruction. Also, there's much more to the industry than what meets the eye. One proponent is Dr. Robert Kozinets, a professor of journalism and marketing at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business. He currently teaches a highly sought-after social media course at the university called Influencer Relations, which he created in 2018. The bigger picture stuff we talk about in my class has to do with understanding the sociology of community and connection that people find online and understanding the psychology of persuasion that drives the appeal of particular influencers and of particular kinds of content that they put out. In short, an influencer is someone who uses their online audience and content to persuade people to act based on their recommendations. Today, some of the main platforms for social media influencers are Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. There are many influencers with 10,000 or even 100,000 subscribers But the top people in this field have millions of people watching and can make several millions of dollars each year 
through brand deals, product releases, and other avenues. There have been influencers on YouTube. Bloggers have been there. What's new is this awareness of the economic value of all of the conversations and discourse and audience gathering and content creation that people have been doing for a long time. So, yeah, if you are already a celebrity or if you've got some special talent or if you're, you know, particularly funny or attractive in some way, you may have an edge over people and be able to turn that into something that you can monetize as a career. But if you're trying to do this based on, you know, expertise or quality content and work your way up like most of the people who I talk to and work with, did it's a lot of time and energy so you're basically running your own business and many of those successful influencers that you see they do have an infrastructure around them they hire people to do their makeup they have someone to do their professional editing they may have a sound person it's not just you know you and a ring light it's a lot more than that while much of the public thinks of influencers as advertisers who push others to buy material items through their content Cousinet says there can be other focuses too I don't define influencers necessarily as selling things. Influencers gather an audience to talk about something. So, for example, you have a lot of people who I would consider to be influencers who are online, who are promoting more simple living, a vegan lifestyle, scaling down, doing more with less, little homes, van life. I mean, I can go on. There are a lot of alternate voices out there who are using the media to communicate an idea that we can economically downshift. I think people tend to focus a lot of attention on these brand deals and brand contracts as being the essence of what an influencer is. That's part of it for sure. And economically, that's where a lot of the attention is. And it's also where a lot of the media is covering things because the media is still commercially driven. And so this idea that Influencers are making people more consumerist. I think what's being reflected is a reflection of the system as it currently is. But there are a lot of people who would like to do social change through their social media activities, and they're also important voices that are out there. However, building a positive niche in social media can be difficult. Some young people are so focused on creating entertaining content in order to grow their audience that will use any means to do so. Being influencer is a very popular thing for my social media students, and many of them are trying to become an influencer. That's Dr. Grace Choi, an assistant professor and program coordinator of social media and digital strategy at Columbia College, Chicago. The university is one of the few that offers a four-year bachelor's program catered towards students looking to carve out a career in social media. I do have to say my current social media students, they already are very deeply engaged in social media. Of course, TikTok is really big for them right now, and they're creatively expressing themselves, creating dancing videos, creating duets and stitching videos, and they're getting a lot of views for their videos as well. But I do have concern with TikTok in a way that there are a lot of challenges on TikTok and it is very focused on entertaining and uh, I'm a little afraid that a lot of young people are lacking media literacy, digital literacy skills to think about their messages before putting out there. Even when I look at my students, they are really creative. They're really focused on visual content. So they're on the top of the game when it comes to creating creative content. However, when I push them to think about what message are you sending to your followers or your future followers, that becomes kind of 
gray area for them to step back and really think about what message they are creating. Choi says that as an educator, she wants to provide her students with strategies and skills that will better the social media landscape. My vision for these social media students is to increase their critical thinking skills as well because I know that they can produce creative visual content. I know they can create TikTok videos and Instagram stories and all those fancy visual content, but what they're lacking is really that critical thinking skills to analyze messages and put them out there. And that's, I believe that's really important when it comes for them to represent a brand when they graduate from this program to say, hey, we're giving this voice to those people who do not have voice right now, or, hey, we need to do something more than saying that we are with those people who are suffering right now to help them understand that whatever they are putting out there on social media has an effect and consequences, and it's not just for entertainment and fun anymore. Back at USC, Kozinets emphasizes that his course, Influencer Relations, isn't aimed at teaching students how to become an influencer, but instead how they can interact with these figures in different roles. This can mean working in social media management for a brand, or at a public relations advertising or marketing agency. Over the years, some of his students have gone on to build successful careers as full-time influencers, but he really wants young people to think deeper about the broader implications of the field. I take an anthropological and a sociological stance on the way that people relate to both media and to technology. That's not to say that all courses that do influencers do. There are a lot of courses around where it is just how to be an influencer and, you know, how to position a camera and to teach those kind of skills. But at a serious research university, I would hope that we can teach at a higher level than that. By next year, influencer marketing is set to be valued at close to $15 billion, according to Adweek. Kozinets projects that the industry will only continue to boom and says universities quickly need to get with the times in order to stay relevant. I suppose there's a snob appeal to some of academia where anything that's seen as popular culture or popular is not as elitist and appealing as studying dead poets or, you know, or, uh, or other ancient relics. But there's room for that. But I think there's also an urgency to understanding the world as it exists right now. And as the economy calls out for expertise, I think we have to be able to answer that in our professional schools, like business schools. I also think that as this becomes more of um, an important phenomenon affecting society, as it clearly is, we need more research and scholarship and teaching around how it's affecting our culture and society. So when you hear about you know, young people who want to be influencers, is that a good thing or is that not such a good thing? I tend to think it probably has characteristics of both. There's no doubt that social media is a powerful tool. How it's used to influence future generations will make all the difference. To learn more about social media, the role of influencers today, and our guests, Dr. Robert Kozinets and Dr. Grace Choi, visit ViewpointsRadio.org. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter and Facebook. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri. I'm Gary Price. Coming up, we'll explore the fire that decimated Chicago in 1871 when Viewpoints returns.
Welcome to today's Book Minute brought to you by BookTrib.com, the leading source of book news and reviews. From John Warner IV, author, historian, and son of U.S. Senator John Warner, and Catherine Mellon, daughter of Paul Mellon of the OSS, comes this smart new historical fiction thriller, Lion, Tiger, Bear, about the shocking hidden history of super advanced technology and covert schemes of the German military during the World War II North African campaign. In this sequel to Little Anton, the adventures continue for Lady Beatrice, the defiant pilot and spy, as she hunts down a secret German mining operation, airbase, and Ananurb dig in Iraq, directly linked to the German Wonderwaffe's atomic bomb and anti-gravity programs. Readers will relish Warner's primary sourced historical details and his boundless imagination. Lion, Tiger, Bear is available at bookstores and your favorite sources for books everywhere. All author profits go to wounded veteran charities. I struggled with symptoms like frequent gas and stomach pain for years. I was bloated all the time with daily diarrhea. At first, I thought it was what I was eating. I kept thinking it was stomach issues. So I did my research and talked to my doctor, and we finally uncovered the truth. It, it was, was actually EPI. Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, or EPI, is a condition where your pancreas is unable to help break down your food. It can lead to symptoms like diarrhea, gas, bloating, stomach pain, unexplained weight loss, and oily stools. And EPI symptoms can be confused with those of other common digestive conditions, like irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's, and celiac disease. So getting to the right diagnosis meant being more open with my doctor about the severity of my symptoms and how often they were happening. But there's good news. EPI is manageable, so don't wait any longer. Use the symptom checker at identifyepi.com and schedule a visit or call with your doctor to ask, Could, could I, I have, have EPI? EPI? Sponsored by AbbVie. It's October in Chicago. Thousands of trees slowly change to bright shades of yellow and red as the sun sets earlier and residents prepare for the long winter to come. The year is 1871, and so far it's been an unseasonably dry, warm, and windy year. From above, the city looks much different than the Chicago of today. It's not a skyline of towering skyscrapers, but rather a flat landscape with rows and rows of mid-sized buildings. Sailboats and ships sit in the lakeside harbor, while coal-powered trains rumble in and out of the city through central railroad lines. Instead of cars, hundreds of horse-drawn carts travel up and down the dusty roads. The Chicago of this time is a densely populated metropolis that's mainly built out of wood. Not only were the bulk of the buildings made of wood, but even the buildings that were made of stone and brick had wood frames. Additionally, the streets and sidewalks were made of wood. Even in some instances, the water pipes are made of wood. That's Julius L. Jones, a historian and curator at the Chicago History Museum. Jones says that Chicago in 1871 was the fastest growing city in the world. More than 330,000 people called it home, and each week, hundreds more flooded in. Early Chicago was a bustling city with a bright future, but this all came to a halt on October 8, 1871, when a fire broke out at the O'Leary residence on the southwest side. You may have heard the theory that Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern that started the fire, but Jones says that this common storyline is unconfirmed. 
So why were the O'Learys for so long blamed and berated? The O'Learys, Patrick and Catherine O'Leary, fit into that paradigm being Irish Catholic immigrants who are working poor and are at the sort of lower end of Chicago's socioeconomic higher stroke. And so that really puts into the context of what happens around the fire. Once you understand that the O'Learys are from a class of people who are disproportionately blamed for things happening in the city, even before the fire, that's how you then make sense of how Mrs. O'Leary was blamed for the fire afterwards. Today, there are several explanations around the cause of the fire. One theory is that a horse cart driver named Daniel Sullivan was drinking and accidentally dropped his lit cigar in the barn and started the fire. However, the truth is that we will probably never know how exactly it started. What historians do know is that there were several factors that added fuel to the fire. Two-thirds of Chicago was built out of wood, and across the city, roofs were constructed from highly flammable tar or shingles. Many of these structures also skipped safety measures that would slow the spread of a blaze. There were some additional safety measures that were known but due to their costs were not followed. The chief one being the idea of fire breaks, which are basically horizontal pieces of wood that go between the studs of walls that prevent the fire from shooting up in between the studs, almost like a chimney and slow down the rate of burn. This was something that people knew about, but in order to build as cheaply and as quickly as possible, was often ignored in constructing of homes in Chicago, and that's where you get the idea of the balloon frame home. You might be wondering, where were the firefighters? Why was the blaze able to get so out of control? Jones points out that Chicago actually had a fire department that was ahead of its time, but was hampered by a series of unlucky accidents that ultimately allowed the Great Chicago Fire to grow. One slowdown was that the firefighters responding to the blaze were initially sent to the wrong section of the city because of a human error in the alarm signaling system. Basically, how the alarm system worked is in each box, it had an automated telegraph that connected to a call center, which was in the city hall and courthouse, which is the same location as our current city hall and county building. And the alarm box would send a Morse code signal of its number. So we actually have an alarm box number 26 in our collection and in the exhibition. So if that alarm was triggered, it would send the signal 262626 to the courthouse. And then they would ring the bell two times, then six times, stop, and then two times, then six times, right? And so this, at the time, was the elaborate system. But as you can imagine, there's so much potential for error, right? So they get confused on the number that they're hearing from the alarm box, and then they ring the bell the wrong number of times, sending the fire department into the wrong area of the city. This delay in response led to the fire having just enough time to spread to a point where it could no longer be contained. It swept through the city during the night of October 8th and burned for two days until October 10th. By its end, it had killed about 300 people and left more than one-third of the city's residents homeless. 
three and a half square miles of the city and more than 17,000 structures were burnt to a crisp. The entire central business district, today referred to as the Loop, was destroyed. Many people compared the destruction almost to Armageddon or the end times. You often hear that reference used because many people had never seen destruction or devastation on this scale. In the wake of the destruction, people across Chicago, despite their differences, pulled together. The events of the Great Chicago Fire garnered global attention, and as a result, resources from around the world poured in to help rebuild the city. Within two years after the fire, there was no trace that a fire ever took place. And the number one reason why that happens is because there is huge commercial interest not only in the city, but in the United States and around the world, to see that Chicago is rebuilt because of the role that many people saw Chicago as playing in the global economy, even in 1871. So enormous amounts of capital resources flooded into the city to see that it was built back better as quickly as possible because of its vital role in the economic fortunes of so many people. The period after the fire was known as the Great Rebuilding. Stricter fire laws were passed to make sure that buildings were made from fireproof materials like brick, marble, or stone. A better city layout was intricately planned, and structures were beautifully designed by famed architects like Louis Sullivan and Daniel Burnham. By 1893, Chicago was again a global destination and hosted the World's Columbian Exposition, a highly anticipated fair that gave rise to several architectural masterpieces. Looking back, as Americans mark the 150th anniversary of the Great Chicago Fire, some believe that if the fire had never happened, Chicago today would be a much smaller city and not the third largest in the U.S., Jones says he hopes people will also remember how the residents of Chicago pulled together in a time of need. We want people to ultimately have a positive view of how the city showed resilience and perseverance after the fire and grew to be the city that we know today. To find out more about this topic and our guest, Julia L. Jones, visit viewpointsradio.org. You can also visit the Chicago History Museum in Lincoln Park, which has a brand new in-depth exhibit about the Great Chicago Fire. This segment was written and produced by Amira Zaveri. Studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Viewpoints returns in just a moment. What are you going to do with your old car? You can try selling it, you could junk it, or you can donate it to Heritage for the Blind. Your car will be towed away for free and your donation is tax deductible. Just call 1-800-835-1478. Heritage for the Blind accepts cars, vans, trucks, and boats. It doesn't matter if your vehicle runs or not. It will be towed away for free and you'll be supporting those that need help. Heritage for the Blind is a nonprofit organization that helps the visually impaired live fuller lives. Call right now to donate your car. And as a special thank you, you'll receive a free three-day vacation voucher to over 50 locations. Call Heritage for the Blind right now. Call 1-800-835-1478. 
Donating is easy, and your vehicle is towed away for free. Plus, you'll get a free vacation voucher for donating. Call now, 1-800-835-1478. That's 1-800-835-1478. Welcome to Culture Crash, where we examine what's new and old in entertainment. In recent months and years, it's felt like so many of the biggest hits have been extensions of pre-existing intellectual property. The Mandalorian and WandaVision are two of the biggest hits Disney Plus has launched, and they are obviously extensions of Star Wars and the MCU. Warner Brothers is launching a new Batman movie, MGM is looking for a new James Bond. You get it. It's nothing new. But it's that never-ending tsunami of franchise and IP content that makes something like Squid Game, a new show from Netflix, so exciting. The show is an original property from South Korea, and it has gone to show that people will find high-quality entertainment, even if it isn't a continuation of IP, and even if it isn't in English. In fact, the streaming service told CNN that Squid Game had the company's biggest launch ever. In just a few weeks, Squid Game has reportedly drawn views from 111 million accounts, demolishing the impressive 82 million households that watched Bridgerton in its first 28 days on the service, and beating out Stranger Things, The Witcher, House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, and countless others. Squid Game is a brutal dystopian show about a group of hundreds of individuals who play a series of children's games for the promise of unfathomable wealth. However, the cost of losing the game is death. The show is capital V violent, but it's also a compelling look at late-stage capitalism, economic desperation, and a portrait of humanity and the lengths people will go to socially climb in today's world. After the booming success of Parasite a few years ago, also an original Korean title, as well as the German show Dark and now Squid Game, I'm growing more and more excited that even if many American creators and studios are relying on IP and existing titles, international markets may be able to capitalize on that exhausting trend by serving global audiences exciting new titles to discuss with friends and meme into oblivion online. Squid Game is now streaming on Netflix. I'm Evan Rook. Did you know that United Healthcare helps connect you to doctors and therapists with 24-7 access to virtual care? So I could have therapy from my couch? Yep. Or a doctor appointment from my car? If you wanted to. Wait, you're right. I don't even like when people see me sing in the car. Couch appointment it is. Virtual visits are just one of the ways United Healthcare helps connect you to better health. Learn more at UHC.com. Plan benefits may vary. There's confusion about how to protect yourself from COVID. One thing is certain. Whether or not you're vaccinated, you need an accurate thermometer to check for fever, the leading sign of flu and COVID. Be vigilant and contact your medical provider at the first sign of fever. Don't rely on non-contact thermometers that have no scientific studies. 
Only the Exergen Temporal Scanner Thermometer has been proven accurate in more than 100 clinical studies. Learn more at exergen.com. That's Viewpoints for this week. Viewpoints is a production of MediaTracks Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows. And find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.